0: On today's Airwaves podcast, you're going to meet a team who personifies Get Real, Get Better. The U.S. Navy's Jammer Technique Optimization Point Magoo team, or JADO, innovatively overcame challenges during COVID-19 to retain and train workforce talent, and their efforts paid off. They've not only improved output over previous years, they've won an award for it. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Pru, and joining me from PMA 234 at the Airborne Electronic Attack Systems Program Office is Program Manager, Captain David Reeder. Also joining us virtually from the West Coast is JADO Site Lead, Thomas Bloom, and Test Lead, Brian Siegler. Welcome to the show. So Captain Reeder, I'd like to start with you today. Tell me about the mission of PMA 234.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. So our mission is plainly stated airborne electronic attack, but what does that mean? And I like to say that it means we put the fog in fog of war. So our job is to build systems that disrupt the enemy's ability to sense, to detect our forces. So we're really protecting our forces by poking the enemy in the eyes. In the 70s and 80s, we managed the EA-6B Prowler and all the systems that went on it. That platform was retired a couple of years ago. So now we focus on building airborne electronic attack systems that go on E-18G growlers for the Navy and many different Marine Corps platforms, which support the joint force.
0: So tell me about the Jammer Technique Optimization Organization, or JADO Point Magoo. What is their mission?
1: So JADO has been around for a long time, and they are really, we call them the jammer's edge. They are day in and day out continually improving our jamming techniques and sending those improved techniques forward to the fleet. They also have a very strong fleet support role. So we have fleet liaisons that not only does JADO develop the techniques, but that they work with the fleet and they help the fleet understand what effect they will have as these techniques are evolved.
0: Sir Thomas and Brian, I'd like to hear from you as well. Tell us more about the JATO team and how you support PMA-234 and the fleet.
2: JATO Point Magoo is a team that does those things, produces, optimizes jammer techniques, the guidance to the air crew for how to employ it. We also help in research and development and test and evaluation of upgrades to jammer systems and new jammer systems. And so we have a team that is Engaged with the fleet, so we have folks located at at Whitby Island, at Fallon, at Nellis Air Force Base, and in Norfolk, as well as our main team here at Point Magoo. vitally important for us to stay closely in touch with the fleet, understand their needs, and be able to turn on a dime to give them answers or new products.
3: I guess the little tidbits I would add is I think traditionally what Jado used to do is we just kind of worked more at the fleets edge and fleets perspective, developing the techniques and giving the kind of gouge and then we were there for support. And in the last probably 15 ish years, it's really gone full circle and we're kind of full circle supporting the acquisition cycle, not just the end and life cycle support, but development acquisition, kind of what if what process, where do we need to focus? And so we really are kind of a full systems engineering team, soup to nuts.
0: The Jado Point Magoo team recently won the prestigious 2022 W. Edwards Deming Award for Human Capital Management. Thomas, tell me about the award and why this is such a big accomplishment for the team.
2: Edwards Deming was an academic who studied business processes and industrial processes. He worked in primarily in the 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s. You might have heard of total quality management. This is something largely founded on the teachings of Professor Deming. He was very much about being efficient, and he was very much about finding ways to eliminate obstacles to productivity and finding ways to eliminate waste. He also taught a lot about process improvement in the face of adversity, when faced with challenges. So it is a award given by the Graduate School USA. It's one of two Deming Awards they give in a year. In a way, winning this award is, is extremely prestigious because it means we are being recognized best in government kind of class performance. It is humbling, but it is, it's a great honor.
0: Perfect. So let's talk about what led up to your team winning the Deming Award and how did COVID-19 constrain the JADO workflows? How did you respond? Thomas?
2: When COVID-19 hit, I remember it was really hard to realize that for the most part, our team would not be on base. We also do a lot of travel and that was shut down. So there was many activities we would normally do that we couldn't do. My biggest concern was preserving the capability of the organization to be ready to hit the ground running again after COVID. I thought, and many of my team leads thought, that we were going to have a real hit in production. And so I was trying to focus the team on, we need to do things that will make us better when we get past this, so that we don't come out of COVID unable to support the fleet appropriately at the, at the level we had been doing. That was the challenge. We wanted to keep our people engaged. We wanted to keep our people safe. And we wanted to build ways for us to be more productive in the future. Brian?
3: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things was just kind of the culture shift from working from home. Everything we do, we were set up to get work done productively on base. And all of a sudden we totally, that that's nuked. We got to start over, reinvent the wheel a little bit and try to figure out, okay, what can I do at home and then move it to base and get it done productively. And that was difficult because a lot of the resources and everything we needed just weren't there. At the same time, you know, the Navy's standing up work from home type resources and tools. Some people are on them, some aren't. Everything's all over the place. So getting that organized was a bit of an issue as well. We started doing things a lot more remotely, too. So even though we weren't necessarily traveling, we got creative in how tests were executed so that maybe we didn't have to be there and we could analyze data after the fact. It was certainly not ideal, but it was better, much, much better than nothing. Or if other tasks had to be slightly modified so they could be work-from-home eligible, we did that. Or if a task could be at home, we did that. So there was a lot more kind of just creative development of that, as well as a training program that was kind of stood up.
2: We allowed people to take equipment, NMCI computers and other unclassified computers that we use home so that people could, for instance, write test automation scripts for some of the equipment that we have. And we actually had people develop hardware in their garages, not just software, but Hardware was actually developed in people's garages that we now use routinely in tests. We prioritized what had to get done on base, and we told folks, do not do any unclassified work on base. In other words, if we need you to work on base because you have to work on classified, that's all you're going to do on base. You're going to come, you're going to get it done, and then you're going to go home and I think that led to some efficiency and, and focus in the work that was done on base. And as such, our production rate continued to climb throughout COVID. We focused on training some new individuals during that time as well. And that, again, was part of why we were able to increase our production instead of taking a hit.
0: I heard you both mention having the time. Despite the challenges of COVID, you found innovative ways to keep working and took advantage of the extra time to establish a much-needed training program. You slowed down to speed up. How did this drive to get real, get better, benefit the team?
3: This was something that was pretty much on our to-do list forever. We always had this training issue, basically in terms of just technical competence, like Okay, great. You just got a, you know, an electrical engineering degree or computer science degree. Welcome to Jato. Okay, well, you still got like three years of learning to do before you're kind of able to do some of the work on your own and be a lot more productive. There were so many things that we would pretty much taken for granted that would happen just on the job training. Hey, here's how you use a spectrum analyzer. Here's some of the tips and tricks and things like that. that just weren't documented anywhere. You could read the manual and it was confusing. So we basically found for some of the stuff like that, we just created briefs that kind of would walk you through it and folks that were relatively new to it could understand. And then it had all the kind of tips and tricks that were specific to what we do built in there. Or there were just other topics that documentation was few and far between or just all over the place and not helpful. We would try to condense that and boil it down to something in the order of 30 to 60 minutes of reading with some points of contact. One of the big things from it that was taken away and not ex-air crew, but the way it was explained to me is oftentimes an air crew, they have different levels and they build and build, and you just teach the people right below you. So not everything goes to, oh, everybody has to go ask Brian or, or Thomas or Jeff or whatever. And then you just have a lineup of five people outside your door all day. That's just untenable. This helps to solve some of that problem. And that's why it was important to kind of everybody, the senior and the junior engineers, to kind of help work this as well. And then if we get more of the junior engineers involved, they help own it too upfront and become SMEs or experts on some of the things that they didn't realize they were experts on. Thomas, I don't know if you had anything.
2: Well, we're talking about the training program. I mean, there's, there's a couple aspects to that. We had some people really stepping up to manage the development of a curriculum. We built a three-tiered approach. The first level is what you take if you're a fresh college graduate from an engineering school, and then the second and the third level bring you up to where you can be fully competent as a test lead, somebody who designs a test, builds a test plan, executes the test, makes sure the test is equipped, analyzes the data, and is able to report the results. That's how we build knowledge. So... Having a way to get college graduate up to a test lead level with kind of a checklist of required and basic knowledge is very niche to our organization. We thought that was vitally important, and COVID gave us an opportunity to actually put a lot of time into developing that curriculum. We had a team lead, Lamar Lomax, who took that task on and spearheaded that effort And I need to give him a lot of credit here because when we crowdsourced ideas, he came up with, let's build a training curriculum like we've always talked about, and he managed it. In the end, we have something that ensures we have technical capability and expertise on our team. Expertise is our lifeblood in our organization. So we have to be able to build it and we have to be able to build it efficiently in order to maintain capability to support the fleet the way we do.
0: So Brian, how did you develop the curriculum or determine what needed to be included in the training program?
3: We had kind of an initial list and we went back and forth a lot between myself, Lamar and a couple of the other engineers are trying to figure out at the top level, what do we need to develop, who can develop it, what's on the shelf what can we get off the shelf from like other people and call it part of our program and then once we started kind of crowdsourcing asking other people hey what do you have you know hey by the way hey this bench isn't documented you start to realize that some of the things we do just don't have that documentation behind them okay great you're going to build a brief actually wait who's your successor they're going to build the brief you know and work with you on it. and you're going to review it and then we're going to review it when you're done And as Thomas said, it was to build test leads or I call them experiment leads. So that way we could have people that have enough knowledge of all the different things that go into an experiment, planning it, execution, what might happen when I'm executing, what do I expect? And then there's all these different avenues I mentioned before, how we do a lot of experiments and technique development, but then there's also the acquisition development side of it. And probably half our engineers are like, what's that? What do we do there? Oh, you go to meetings and read paperwork? It's like, no, it's more complicated than that. Here's the type of the math and how what you're really doing does support that. It's just kind of everything's reversed and we're solving for like a different variable in the equation. Oh, that's easy. I get it, you know, but otherwise they just have no idea. How do you do all this? Like, so we were able to document things like that and that really helped. And some of the other stuff, just because frankly, less of us were able to be involved in any project at a time, because usually, you know, a number of people in a room were restricted, it forces people to just get better to some degree because they don't have all the oversight, which is totally required and necessary to kind of help grow people.
0: I love how you both mentioned that you crowdsourced ideas and content, not just from your SMEs, but also from your junior engineers. Why was it so important to bring everyone to the table when developing this curriculum?
2: It's vitally important when you have a team, to have all the players involved, right? And we are constantly working in small teams in our organization to solve this problem or that problem. We know we need to rely on each other, and we do that. and And we trust each other to be capable. And if we don't know something, we know who to go ask. So that's part of our culture. And I think that fosters Uh, crowdsourcing solutions when faced with these sort of massive problems that, that COVID gave us. My team is an excellent team and I have great respect for all of them. And I think that respect is mutual across the team. And that really makes it possible to ask people to come up with good ideas and to execute on those ideas.
0: And Thomas, what behaviors enabled your success?
2: As a manager, I got on the phone and I, was constantly in touch with people, checking in on them. How are you doing? What are you working on? And all of my deputies did the same. That engagement with the team, I think, really helped us from having any problems develop. And it really kept people busy. And I think it also brought us closer together. I think because we kept reaching out to people, It makes everybody know that we are still a team and we're still working together, even though we're not physically in the same place. I think that's very important. I agree.
3: Basically, we had to quickly reform or change how we do work. You know, And it was a culture shock to a lot of people. I think the normal life for most of the engineers was very changed and they were just trying to figure out, they were still trying to work their normal core hours, but they totally had to figure out, hey, Like, how do I be productive? So I think it helped at least that we were reaching out, trying to have more emails and useful discussions or phone calls, but it helped because a lot of the people were just more willing to, okay, whatever, let's all just have a phone call and talk through this. Teams was totally something new to most people. Some were resistant, some weren't. Now it's like a way of life.
2: I would say also that because we were changing and shifting and we came up with these ideas, I and and my deputies, we communicated with the PMA. We communicated with the people on Captain Reader's team and told them, here's what we want to do. We're going to need to do some different things now. We have to be flexible. That level of communication up and down the chain, really getting support from the PMA, that really enabled us to succeed.
0: Thomas, earlier you mentioned trust. Why is trust so important on a team?
2: I'll say we're world class at what we do, and we have to be. That's what the fleet needs. What that means in our case is that we and our sister organization, we and they together are able to support mission data updates at a rate that other programs don't most programs give the kind of updates we do on an annual or a biannual basis. We do it every month. That level of activity and the ability to rapidly turn as needed data update requests or responses to fleet questions is requiring us to be authorized to release that data. There are All the bureaucratic Obstacles to rapidly moving stuff to the fleet have been eliminated by our management. And they have authorized us to release data to the fleet when we say it's good. That requires a level of trust from the program office that many other programs don't have. And it's trust in the expertise of the team. We didn't want to get rusty. When people are at home, when they're teleworking, is vitally important that management trusts them to do their work. And I think because we have this trust in our organization, that makes us more efficient.
0: And speaking of efficiency, Thomas, how did you measure results? How do you know the team increased production and continued to improve on output?
2: Well, here at NOC WD, at at Point Magoo, I have to give a quarterly report to my management uh, here on base there's some standard metrics that we gather every time. Now, because we work in databases and we produce products that have to be formalized, often for release, we can easily track our products across time. And I would go into these senior management reviews and I would say, hey, we're improving our processes. We're getting more efficient. We're, the team is doing great. We consistently beat our goals. And I was challenged. I was challenged early this year by a manager above me. He said, can you show us that in quantity? Can you put that on a graph? Can you not just say you're getting better, but can you describe how much and how often and so forth? And I said, okay, yes, sir. I will have that for you at my next quarterly review. And I went back and I gathered all the data from the last five years and I put it on a chart for this product and that product and this other product. And I had to double and triple check my numbers because we have these charts that show our productivity has been marching up and up and up in ways that I didn't, I didn't even understand that until I put it on a graph. We have vastly increased the number of pieces of gear we work with that we support for the warfighter. We have almost quadrupled our production rate across the last five years. And we have steadily increased our production of fleet tactical employment guidance. These are JTATs that we give to U.S. and Australian air crews and to the Marine Corps. Those production rates have also gone up. And on none of these charts, to my surprise, was there a dip in production that you could associate with COVID? I think These charts that showed this productivity increase is in part why we were submitted for the award that we won.
0: All right. So let's talk lessons learned. And I really want to go around the room with this one. Brian, what did you learn and how did you share that learning?
3: I feel like we learned quite a bit about our team and ourselves just during this whole process. You're kind of forced to be introspective. All of a sudden, you know, as I mentioned, our whole way of life is totally has to change out of necessity, and we relied on our team and we learned quite a bit from them. And we were able to kind of reflect and turn that around and change. Not necessarily we take every change, but we listened. And I think people felt they were heard. And I think that really helped. So people were more willing to come talk to us. Our doors were figuratively open, even though we're tens of miles away, or in some cases, a thousand miles away. So people were more willing to just pick up and communicate and just have that, you know, kind of more less formal cordial conversation to kind of get things moving or try to get change made when they needed it or felt it was required, which was helpful. I think that was one of the biggest things, Thomas.
2: I think I really learned some of the lessons that Professor Deming really taught. And I had studied Deming many years ago. And what I learned many years ago sort of resonated when we started, we were forced to examine our processes. We had to change them to work through COVID, but we also changed processes that weren't impacted by COVID. And that concept is you should not feel complacent about your process. It's vitally important to occasionally take a deep breath, take a step back, look at how things are being done and say, is there a better way? Is there any little thing I can do so that this routine or this paperwork or this process can flow more smoothly, more quickly, make less obstacles to productivity. That's something that is now sort of like ingrained. And I look at everything from how do we approve trips, how do we approve leave? We've shaved a lot off of all of those things. We'll keep doing that. We'll keep looking at our processes and saying, hey, should I do tomorrow this thing the way I did it today, or is there a better way? Is there an old reason we do it this way that no longer applies? Or is there some new technology or some new methodology that has cropped up that would be better than what we're doing today?
0: And Captain Reeder, did you want to comment on this one as well?
1: I'll just say that sharing the learning is something that we struggle with in all of our organization. So I love highlighting the great work that JADO team at Point Magoo did because it helps illustrate for the rest of the team what can be achieved. It shows them the art of the possible. And we'll just constantly keep working on better ways to share the learning. And hopefully we can do some things here that uh, they can benefit from.
0: All right. So final question for today's podcast. What advice do you have for other program managers or other teams as they tackle a challenge like this one? What can we all learn from your program's success?
3: Sure, I think we talked on some of the key points, just we have to trust our people more. I found one of the things I had to do was just vary how I communicated with people just to the medium that they prefer, whether it was email, phone call, or to talk to them in person. And then we were constantly trying to empower just whenever possible and practical, just at the lower levels.
2: I'll just reiterate, go to your people for answers, go to your people for new ideas, work to implement process improvement with some kind of routine. And don't take any process or obstacle to productivity for granted. There's probably a better way to do it. So I would recommend take the time to engage your people on overcoming these obstacles.
1: So one of the reasons I love to celebrate all the accomplishments of the the JDO team is it highlights, I think, a pitfall that we often fall in in Navair. You heard Brian talk about how they had had ideas of improving their training for years and often we get caught in the day to day i just got to i'll say crank out the next widget or yeah yeah i don't have time for professional development this really shows the power of if we take the time to improve our people if if we take the time to improve our workforce if we take the time to improve our processes It's not wasted time. And that shows in the production improvements that Thomas talked about. So we really have two missions. We have the mission of turning out capability of the warfighter, but we also have the mission of improving the organization. And that's what they took the time to do. If you improve the people, if you improve the system, it also naturally improves the product. So that's one of the things I'm most proud about them for is they took the time. They valued the organization, they valued the people, and it's going to pay huge dividends going forward.
0: And I couldn't agree more. Thank you all for joining us today to share how the Jado team found innovative ways to train your workforce, share learning, and increase production despite the challenges of COVID-19. Congratulations to the entire team on your award. This is such a great example of Get Real, Get Better. Of course, you can check out other examples by tuning into the Airwaves podcast on all your favorite listening apps. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.